0: Hey, we're in Matthew chapter two, if you have your Bibles today, we're in week four of a series called Weary World Rejoices. We're learning how Jesus at Advent came into a dark world and he didn't change the entire world, but he changed people in the world. He changed the world of the people even though the world around them wasn't changed. We've talked about hope, we've talked about faith, we've talked about joy today. We're gonna talk about peace. This week actually wraps up Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday with our seven Christmas services. If you're in town, I want to invite you and your family, any friends that you have to celebrate Christmas with us in one of those seven experiences. I have learned more and more since 2020 that Journey families who go out of town have paused their kind of family holiday out of town Um, And I hear all the time journey families who go out of town to be with family, uh, but they watch one of our Christmas services together because their families don't have a home church. So uh, all of our services will be live streamed. If you're going to be out of town Thursday, Saturday, or Sunday, maybe take one of those cards, remember when our service is, and just for an hour, um, ask your family, hey, you want to watch our churches?" Christmas service, we'll be doing the Advent, we'll have a little Christmas devotional, we'll clearly present the gospel, we'd love to have you engaged however you can be engaged. So Matthew chapter 2 today, we've been in Luke chapter 2 all month long, we'll eventually get to Luke chapter 2, but we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 2 because as we look for peace in Christmas, there has to be an acknowledgement if you're looking for it, it's because you don't have it. So what we do is we open up the word of God in Matthew chapter 2, we're gonna see first what I call the threat of Christmas, So the fact that we are looking for peace means that we don't have peace. The threat of Christmas would be that we could live life without peace with God, without peace with people. There is a threat in the Christmas story that needs to be understood and dealt with, that peace is accessible, but it's not inevitable in the life that we live. it's interesting because you know this, like just intrinsically, if you watch Christmas movies, you know some of the joy of the movie is the threat that is overcome, so we're gonna do a little movie trivia today, holiday movie trivia, but here's what I need you to understand. Just because I mention a Christmas movie from the stage doesn't mean that you should go watch that Christmas movie with your family. Doesn't mean I endorse any of these Christmas movies, just that I've seen these Christmas movies. Someone told me this morning, we went home as a family with our young kids and watched Christmas vacation this week. There's some racy scenes in that. You should have pointed that out from the stage. So. I'm pointing out from the stage that because I talk about a movie, doesn't mean I endorse a movie. The only thing Journey officially endorses is The Chosen. You can watch that all day, every day with everyone you know. Other than that, like, your parents are like, vet the shows for your kids. But we're going to do some Christmas trivia. I'll, I'll give the situation, um, and, and I'll, I'll give the threat, you tell me the movie. Um, so the threat in the first movie I'm gonna give you is these three ghosts that will visit you at night, and the last ghost tells you you'll like die with a terrible legacy if you don't change your heart. That would be Christmas Carol. It's a threat to be overcome. Um, another Christmas movie, the, uh, the situation or the threat would be um, that you're not gonna receive your normal Christmas bonus, but you've already spent it on the down payment of a swimming pool. That would be... Yeah, apparently don't watch that one with children under the age of eight or nine. Um, I'm glad you know it, but let's let the kids grow up a little bit before we watch that one. Uh, maybe another Christmas movie um, would be two burglars who had been waiting to burglarize his home until a family went out of town, but they left their kid. That would be Home Alone, right? So there's a threat to be overcome in Home Alone. There was another movie about a kid and the threat of the whole movie is that he would like shoot his eye out if he got his favorite Christmas present. That was... Yeah, Christmas story, another Christmas uh, movie. The threat was that like this guy was gonna steal all of the presents and even the decorations in town and he was gonna take them up to his home on Mount Crumpet. That would be The Grinch, yeah. And then maybe the best Christmas movie of all time, when your estranged wife is taken hostage by a group of terrorists and you have to come bail her out. <laughs> that would be, yeah, and maybe the greatest threat of all is that some people think Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's just in the Christmas season. Um, by the way, by the way, don't watch that one with your kids. Like, just, let's just say that now. Let's repent that we have watched it, but remember the lessons from that movie, right? So like, within the Christmas story, there are these threats to be overcome. As we learn about the Christmas story in Matthew chapter two, there's a threat to be overcome. Let's read about the threat in Matthew two. Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the East came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. The threat of Christmas is clearly this in Matthew chapter 2. When you ask one king where to find the other king, one of them is not the real king. And Christmas becomes a threat when we are told a king was born if we don't want him to be the king because we are our own king. When one king is asked where the other king is, we're told that that king was disturbed. And actually, everyone in Jerusalem was disturbed that somebody showed up claiming to be a king because a king would claim to have authority. The threat of Christmas is that a king has come, but for him to be your king, you cannot be the king. So we had two trips to Israel scheduled this year as a church, and um, in June and July, we were in Israel with around 40 of our college students. Uh, And one of our last stops in Galilee before we head south to Jerusalem uh, is in an ancient town called Beit Shan. Beit Shan is one of the most well-preserved first century Roman cities in the entire world. Um, And it's right in the middle of Israel. Go ahead and throw that picture up guys if you have it, that that graphic so that they can see the town. There it is. Um, It's an incredible place to go and walk and be a part of. But this is a town that is 15 centuries old. It's got 15 layers of kind of the civilization built into this town. So you walk through this massive Roman city that was part of the Decapolis in the time of Jesus. And then at the very end of the city, there's this tell, which is this mound of ancient civilizations built one on top of another. And the teaching that I wanted to do was at the top of the tell. Because from the top of the tell, you can look and you can see Mount Gilboa, which is very important in Old Testament biblical history. So it was about 103 degrees that day. About uh, 110 heat index, think Middle East in July, really, really hot. Um, and there's no shade there. So I told the kids and some of the adults that were with us, we're gonna go up to the top. You need to take as much water as you can. On the way back, we'll get more water. You don't have to walk to the top, but I'm gonna do my teaching at the top because the top represents one of the most important stories in the Bible for those of us who follow Jesus. So we got to the top, almost everyone made it. And I had them turn around and look at Gilboa and I said, this is the place, for those of us who follow Jesus, Jesus came in the line of David. This is the place where David began to be king in Israel. And one of like the probably better verse students said, wait a minute, wasn't David crowned king in Hebron, which would be about hundred miles south. And I said, yes, David was crowned king in Hebron, but King Saul died on that mountain. And David could not become king of Israel until the old king of Israel died. And it is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus cannot be king of our life until we choose to die to ourselves. This is the picture. Like your salvation story is a story of two kings and one of them has to say, he is the real king. So that's the story that we come into at Christmas. And for many Christians, for many of you who consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what I have found is that most Christians allow Jesus to become what I would call their two-thirds king. Like they allow Jesus to be king of their past. They allow Jesus to become king of their eternity. But Jesus is not yet king of their present. For many followers of Jesus, Jesus is their two-thirds king. I've heard, uh, I've heard salvation described as a blank sheet contract um, with Jesus that you tell Jesus when I come to you, my, my life is like a blank sheet of paper, I'm gonna sign it, and Jesus, anything you fill in for me, I will do. My life is now yours. And I think for most of us, when it comes to the past, our past is a blank sheet agreement with Jesus. Jesus, you literally can have all of my past, you can write over anything in my story that you want to. My entire past, but especially my sin and brokenness and my failure, my entire past is yours. Jesus, you have a blank sheet agreement with my past. I've also found that for most Christians, eternity is a blank sheet agreement. If there is life after this one, none of us are expecting to live more than a hundred and a couple, maybe. I think all Christians say, if eternity is if there's life after death, Jesus fill in the blank. I'll sign it. My entire eternity is given to you. Whatever you, you fill it, in, you fill in the blanks. My eternity is given to you, But most Christians, when it comes to their present. And Jesus says, just sign it and trust me with your life. Most of us are like, "Uh, I don't know about that. I'm describing your present from the moment of your salvation in Jesus to the moment you die and begin your eternity with Jesus. Most of us are unwilling to give a blank sheet agreement with Jesus to our present. It's crazy, we'll trust Jesus with 100 years from now, but 100 days from now, like we we got some ideas, got some thoughts, got some plans, got some fears. So, most Christians allow Jesus to be their two thirds king. 100% of my past, um, 100% of my eternity, but Jesus to give you every day for the rest of my life, I don't, um, I don't think that would be a safe agreement to make because I've been thinking and I've got, I got some things I want to do, I got some plans that I made, I got some fears that I would have that you might force me into. So, Jesus is king of all of my past, Jesus is king of all of my eternity. But in my present, that king like hasn't totally died yet. And what's interesting, you should write this down. What I've learned is I've really studied theology carefully about Christianity. Christianity 101 tells us that Jesus cannot reign in your life until you resign from your life. And most of you still haven't turned in that resignation. You still have some plans. You still have some thoughts. You still have some desires. You're far more comfortable in the driver's seat than the passenger seat. But Jesus cannot reign in your life until you resign. And that's the threat of Christmas, that Jesus has come to reign, not just to help in our lives. It's one of the reasons, as we look at this kind of dynamic, 100% of my past, 100% of my eternity, not very much of my present, we've said, let's start small. Our goal next year is for 1%. Okay, Jesus has 100% of my past, is 100% of my eternity, let's give him 1% of my present. And for some of you, when we look at the 1% more commitments, because you can like actually break these into minutes and hours and days and weeks, we've asked next year that you would give 1% more of your life to your walk with Jesus for kingdom movement. That'd be 14.4 minutes a day, I think an hour and 40 minutes a week, seven hours and some change, a month, three and a half days a year in the generosity area, 1% more towards the tithe as you work towards 10% or if you already tithe 1% more, but to somebody else. I'm just doing math here. Please understand my heart. I'm not trying to be hurtful. I'm not trying to be hateful. I'm just doing math. I'm just speaking truth. Based on the graphic on the screen behind me, there are far too many Christians who give Jesus 100% of their past and 100% of their eternity and in 2023 did not give him 1% of their present. It's just math. I, I'm not trying to be super spiritual. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just doing math. If days and hours and weeks and months can be divided into time, there are a lot of Christians who, who have Jesus as a two-thirds king. All of my past, 100%. All of my eternity, 100%. Less than 1% of my present. I'm really busy. I got some things going on. Christmas challenges us to do better in these areas. It's one of the reasons we're asking you to walk 1% more with Jesus in 2024. Now, I've got some really smart friends who know how to do math and who see through a little bit of the veil of what we're trying to do as we try to get you engaged faithfully in church because a few weeks ago I had somebody come up and say Christian you're uh, you're actually underselling our commitment. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, if you actually do all the things you've asked us to do, it's not 1% because they all build on top of each other. It's 3%. You're really asking us for 3%. And I was like, you got me. You caught me red-handed. I'm sorry for being sneaky and tricky and asking for so much of your time. But I said, if we would flip around what you get to keep, I just want you to understand what you said. As Christian, you're asking me to give Jesus 100% of my past, 100% of my eternity, but... Keep 97% of my present to myself? He said, I don't like it when you say it that way. And I said, that's why I said it that way. Because like, like, you need to understand what you're saying is, I just don't have much time for Jesus to be king now. King of my past, yes. King of my future, yes. King of now, I've got some things that I had planned to do. Here's what you need to remember. As you walk away from here and you begin to look at 2024, Jesus does not desire to be Solomon's mom in your throne room. It's not even something that he offers us. He say, what do you mean by that? There was a bunch of kings, one queen in the history of Israel for a real short span. There was only one king in the history of the united Israel or the divided Israel and Judah who had more than one throne in the throne room, it was Solomon. And we were told in 2 Kings chapter nine that Solomon made a throne for his mom so that while he was sitting on the throne, she could come and sit beside him. There are too many Christians who have made Jesus Solomon's mom. You're like, hey Jesus, I built you a throne right beside mine. It's a little smaller, it's a little nicer, but every now and then I'd like to consult you on life before I make my decision. There are not two thrones in the throne room. If there were, ours would be the little one, not the big one. So you need to understand as you move from 2023 to 2024 and you consider giving Jesus 1% of your life, he doesn't desire to be Solomon's mom. and. In, Till you resign, he can't reign. So Christmas has a little bit of a threat, but the good news is it has some big potential as well. Number two would be the potential of Christmas for peace. As we look in Luke chapter two, where we've been the last month, we read the angelic message that Jay has already set up today in our worship time to these shepherds out in the fields outside of Bethlehem. It says in verse 13 of Luke two, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. A couple different phrases that I wanna look at in these three verses. In verse 14, we see the phrase, glory to God. It actually says glory to God in the highest heavens. Here's what you need to understand. Because of Jesus, we now have the ability to see God clearly. This was not something that had been announced. This was not something that had been possible. Glory to God in the highest heaven. So the word glory means to feel the weight of or to understand what matters. So the angels were saying to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest heaven. You now have the ability to understand and feel the heart of God in the highest heaven, which had not been given to the people of Israel before. The Old Testament broke apart kind of the word heaven into three layers. Um, The first heaven was the atmosphere of earth, kind of between the surface of earth and where you pop into outer space. The second heaven were the stars and uh, what we would say would be the universe. The third heaven was the throne room of God. So you would hear in scripture the highest heaven or the third heaven um, or the throne room of God. But every time this was represented in the Old Testament, it was weird. Like not only could you not... Understand glory. You couldn't feel it. You couldn't understand it. It was just weird. So Isaiah gets lifted to the throne room of God, and it's a bunch of weird looking angels, weird looking wheels, and weird weird looking eyes, and they're flying right and left and everywhere, and they're like kind of on fire, and it's just weird. Ezekiel has a similar vision of God in the highest heavens, and it's just weird. There was no one who really understood who God is, the heart of God from the throne room of heaven. And now the angels are saying, glory to God, you're gonna understand and feel the heart of God from the highest heaven to to now, you're gonna understand it because of Jesus. Uh, Paul David Tripp in the devotional book that we've been reading, I feel like states this really well on December 4th, he talks about this concept of glory at heaven and uh, at Christmas. And he says, there's something particularly glorious about the hymns that explain and define the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Words like veiled in flesh, the Godhead, so you can see God in Jesus. Hail the incarnate deity, God who became a man. Or radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. These lyrics shimmer with glory. This makes sense because they echo the glory song that the angels first sang on the night when the most glorious thing in history happened, God took on human form. God became a man deity took on humanity, glory came to earth in human form. There's only one word that captures this one amazing history altering event, glory. We are now able to understand the heart of God from the highest heavens. And while Jesus does not answer every question you have, he answers all the questions that you need answered. Because when we see Jesus, we see three things about God. Jesus allows us to see God's heart towards people, Jesus allows us to see God's heart towards sin, and Jesus allows us to see God's power over death. You need to understand that the Bible will not answer every question that you ever have about life, but it will answer every serious question that you need to have answered. Jesus doesn't answer every question that you ever have about life, but he answers all the important questions about who God in the highest heavens is. So if we would say, how does God love people? We would say, look at Jesus. Jesus helps us understand God's heart towards people. If we wanna know how God wants to interact with humanity, we need to look at Jesus. Jesus will tell us how much God loves humanity. I also love this second part, letter B. Jesus tells us what God feels about sin. In the left-leaning progressive Western church that's kinda sweeping our country now as it's moved over from Europe, you'll hear a lot of people say that because God is love, sin is no big deal. That is not the story that you see when you look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, sin is not only a big deal, it's the biggest deal. Because when you look at Jesus, you cannot look at Jesus and say, God doesn't care about sin. Because if you do that, you have to say, if God doesn't care about sin, then he certainly doesn't care about Jesus, because look what he did to Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you have to realize that God hates sin, that he punishes sin, but that he desires to forgive sin. Say, what does God feel about people? Well, look at Jesus. It will tell you everything you need to know. Maybe not everything you want to know, but everything you need to know. How does God feel about sin? Look at Jesus. It may not tell you everything you want to know, but it will tell you everything you need to know about sin and your sin and God's heart towards your sin. It'll also tell you about God's power over death. In this season of Christianity that we're living through in our country, there's a movement going on called deconstruction. And here's the process of deconstruction. Usually kids in my generation, kids in their mid 40s, early, uh, late 30s, early 40s, who were brought up in the church, felt like they were forced to be kind of Christians in the 80s and 90s are now trying to figure out if I really wanna be a Christian. So they're deconstructing what they've been told they should be their whole life, trying to figure out if they should believe it for themselves. Anytime I meet someone on this deconstruction journey, I say, please make sure you read every piece of religious literature that's ever been published Study every world religion that's ever been published. Before you make your final decision, go check them all out because you will find out that no one offers what Jesus offers. If you're really trying to make the best decision, study everything. I promise you, you will not find anyone who loves like Jesus, forgives like Jesus, or gives you the power that Jesus has. Show me someone who died and came back to life is proof that when we die, we can come back to life, and I'll consider following that guy. But until you find that guy, I'm gonna stick with Jesus. He doesn't give me every answer, but he gives me every answer I need to connect to God, amen? So, like, I'm gonna follow Jesus. This was the posture of the disciples. In John chapter six, Jesus had fed 5,000 people, probably 20,000, 5,000 men, plus their women and their children. And then he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They find him and they're like, give us more food. And he's like, that's it on the food, but you should follow me spiritually. And they were all like, heck no. And everyone leaves. There's only 12 left of these 20,000 from the days before church service. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he's like, you out too? Cause I'll find new people. If, if I have to, I will. And listen to the apostle Peter's answer in John chapter six. You don't wanna leave two, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the holy one of God. Jesus, we don't know all the answers, but we know enough answers to follow you. You haven't told us everything, but you've told us everything we need to know to be forgiven and eternal, so we're in. We don't understand everything, but we get you, Jesus, because you show us God. Glory to God in the highest heavens. And then it says, peace to those. This is different than the message I think I heard my entire life growing up. Understand, peace to those means that those who receive the Savior receive peace from God. Again, I don't know if it was just my generation or or the people who wrote the Christmas plays that I was a part of and watched, but this just sounds different. It sounds different than the way I heard it my entire life. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Didn't you always hear peace on earth and goodwill towards men? Like, didn't Jesus bring peace and good for everyone? Like, that's what what I feel like I've heard my entire life. But then I opened the Bible and I thought, that's not what it says. So then you go back to the original language in the Greek and you're like, what exactly does it say? Does it say that God brings peace to everyone or that God only brings peace to Christians? It's actually interesting and it says it's a little bit of both. He brings peace through Christians, but there's a special peace called favor that he brings to Christians. Christians, So the question we have to ask, peace to those on whom his favor rests, is what is the favor of God and do I have it? What is the favor of God and do I have it? You know how to answer that question? What is the, do you have the favor of God? Now, sadly, a lot of Christians look at culture and we try to, we try to see the favor of God as good things in our life, good situations in our life, good circumstances on our life. In Psalm 73, David is, is writing And he says this, it's a powerful Psalm. He said, when I looked at who God was and how good God was, just through the lens of how things were going in my life, I almost lost my faith. Because I looked at people who didn't have faith, who didn't follow God, who weren't making sacrifices, and they seemed to have life better than I did. When I just looked at my faith in the terms of here and now, man, I almost walked away from my faith. But then I remembered, my faith is bigger and it's longer than the here and the now. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul echoes something very similar. Paul says if Christians only have hope in Jesus in the things that he gives them in this life, you should feel sorry for them. Because life is hard and Jesus will not be enough. If you only follow Jesus for what you get in life, you should feel sorry for people cuz life is hard for everyone. He will say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4:16, though outwardly we waste away, <laughs> like we get old, Um, we get tired, our bodies break down, life happens and it's hard. Though outwardly we waste away, inwardly we can be renewed day by day. But he said it's by doing this in verse 18, fixing our eyes, not on what is seen, not on the here and now, but what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. I cannot judge God based on my temporary circumstance. What is unseen is eternal. I have to think through the lens of the eternal. I think so many times we're not sure whether or not God's favor is resting on us because our life doesn't feel like everything's going 100 like things are not perfect. Uh, my son Christian got home from college Monday and we made a quick trip to the mountains of Colorado to go ski and flew out Thursday, ski Friday, um, flew back. And we were on the uh, lift with a, with a guy from Detroit who'd grown up in Breckenridge where we were skiing. And as we were riding the lift up, it was like, hey, where are you from? He's like, I'm actually from here, but I live in Detroit. Uh, was, he was kind of a young businessman, probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s. And I was like, well, how long are you in town? And he was like, thankfully two weeks. He's like, man, life has just been going so crazy. He's like, I need these two weeks on the mountain just to get away from my normal life. I said, yeah, I get that. And then he said this, never, I never even asked him his name. Then he said this, I've also deleted all my social media for the next two weeks because I, find out that they're, I found that they're bad for my mental health. And I said, why is that? He said, because I feel like I spend my entire life looking at what I don't have and stepping into arguments that other people are having. And I just feel like when I'm watching the world from a comparison issue, what they have versus what I don't, it just, it, it hurts my mental health. So I've just come to ski every day for two weeks and to stay off social media. I thought, man, there's a lot of Christians who base the goodness of God on that comment. They base the goodness of God towards them based on what they see happening to others rather than on what Jesus has done for them. So it's an important question. What is the favor of God? The favor of God is a relationship, an eternal relationship with God through his son, Jesus. The favor of God is really four very specific things. Let me read through some New Testament text for you. In 1 Peter three eighteen, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, Christian, to bring me to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. What does it mean to have the favor of God? It means that Jesus died for your sin in your place. That's what it means to have the favor of God in your life. It also means Romans 8, 3, and 4, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, perfection to be in a relationship with God, might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What does it mean that God's favor rests on me? It means Jesus died for your sin, but he lived for your righteousness. There is a requirement of perfection to live in a relationship with God that Paul says we don't have, but Jesus had it and he said, you can borrow mine. That's what it is to live in the favor of God. Romans eight thirty four said the favor of God is also this. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, I do not know how your life is going but I know how your spiritual life is going. Jesus died for your sins so you wouldn't be punished. Jesus lived for your righteousness because you're less than perfect. And he prays every moment of every day for your soul and for your life and what's going on. That is the favor of God. That Jesus loved me enough to die for me, live for me, and he prays for me all day, every day. That's who Jesus is to me. Life is hard, but I don't base the favor of God on what's going on around me, but in what Jesus did for me. And then in in Mark chapter eight, he calls us to be on mission with him. It says he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it." What is the favor of God? It's that Jesus was punished for your sin. It's that he allows you to borrow his righteousness. It's that he prays for you every day and he invites you in his mission to help the world know who he is. Peace to those on whom his favor is. Peace to those who have made peace with God through Jesus. That's what it means to have God's favor rest on you. But it doesn't stop there. There is a second element. Jesus is not just for Christians. Glory to God in the highest, but on earth peace. If peace to those means those who receive the Savior receive peace from God, on earth peace means those who receive the Savior offer peace to the world. That is the mission. Of God. Once you receive peace, you now exist to give peace. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. You could maybe say it this way Jesus offers peace to those who will follow him. Listen closely, I'm almost done. Jesus offers peace to those who will follow him, and then Jesus' people offer peace to the rest of the world. Jesus offers his peace to those who will follow him, and then Jesus' people will offer peace to the rest of the world. But mainly in two areas, relationships, very specifically, broken relationships, and people's broken relationship with God. And as we close this service, maybe this is the Christmas part of this message that you needed to hear. Maybe you, between now and the end of the year, need to begin to try to figure out how to live at peace with somebody right now that you're living in conflict with. Because Jesus gives peace, but then Jesus' people bring peace. Let me give you a few verses to think on as we process busted relationships in your life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, his followers would be called peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. People who follow Jesus will exist to bring peace to broken areas of their life. Romans 12, 18 will say it this way, as long as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It might not be easy, it might not be your fault, but your response can be to live at peace with people, but Ephesians four says that may take forgiveness, but you can do that because it was done for you. Let's look at this screen and step back for a minute. As 2023 comes to a close, What is the relationship in your life that has lost peace, that you might be able to be a peacemaker in, at least as far as it depends on you, because you're willing to forgive like you've been forgiven. For some of you, it's your spouse. You're still married, sleep in the same bed, you're sitting in the same row, but you both know there's no peace. Jesus' followers will attempt to be peacemakers, as far as it depends on them, by being willing to forgive. For some of you, it's your kids. Especially for some of you, your adult kids, or for some adult kids, it might be your parents. Like, you just know there's just not a peace there. For some of you, it's like your in-laws that you consider outlaws. Peace has kind of been broken. But you're a Christian. That means you're a peacemaker. And as far as it depends on you, you can choose peace, because you know how the forgiveness thing works. For some of you, it might be a friend or neighbor, it might be a coach, it might be a teammate, might be a coworker, might be a boss, might be an employee. There was peace, there's not now. But you're a Christian, which means you're a peacemaker. So as far as it depends on you, you can choose peace. Some of you are not even gonna tell them you've forgiven them, but you're gonna choose to forgive and live at peace Your whole Christmas holiday is going to be different because you acted like a Christian and became a peacemaker. That's one area where Christians bring peace. The greatest area is our mission in life to help people make peace with God. This is where verse 15 says, We invite people to Bethlehem. The angels told the shepherds, This Jesus guy is in Bethlehem. You need to go see him. And they were like, Let's go to Bethlehem and find Jesus. Thursday and Saturday and Sunday at our church will be Bethlehem. We'll be presenting to people baby Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And then we'll pray their heart responds. Why do we do that? Because it's our mission to offer peace. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. Journey, for many of you, this will be your last Sunday in church because you'll be traveling for the holidays, busy on New Year's Eve, but do not leave today without committing to be a messenger of peace. If there's a busted relationship in your life, you can choose peace. And if you know someone who doesn't know Jesus, you can introduce peace but you gotta be active in that. What has God said to your heart today? And what do you need to do to respond and kind of step into what you've heard? Our reflection questions will be on the screen just allow you to kind of think, process, answer some questions, pray. After those are up there, I'll come close us in prayer. But as we enter this moment, God, we pray you'd open our hearts to hear what you want us to hear as we answer these questions. Let us seek the Holy Spirit's voice in the answer. And God, let us commit things to prayer that will bring the peace on earth that Jesus has brought to our life through salvation. It's our prayer, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'll be back in a couple minutes to close this.